Welcome to the Level Design Podcast, in which we look at the world of game development through the lens of level design. In this episode, we bring back one of our original panelists that kicked this podcast off, the infinite Steve Lee. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Mark Drew, and joining me in diving down the rabbit hole is Rob McLaughlin, hailing from the Chinese room. Hello, Rob. Good evening. How's sunny Brighton? Very sunny. Awesome. And also your mafioso friend by the beach, Jonathan Wilson from Hangar 13. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, it's always good to be back. We, we have a, a deep dive from last episode with you, so I think people now know all about you. Just a bit. It wasn't like a massive interrogation or anything, but we'll Next see. time. <laughs> Next time. Quizzing from the frozen north, well, okay, Scotland, is a genius that is Valentina Chrysostomo. Welcome back, Valentina. Hello, everyone. I'm, it's great to be here, and I sound like a Game of Thrones character from the frozen north. So that, that's great, too. Yeah. <laughs> from the Great Wall. <laughs> and sitting in the hot seat this week, with a lamp shining into his poor eyes, we're interrogating the infinite and slightly dishonoured Steve Lee. Hello, Steve. Hey. How's it going? I've never been called infinite before. So I'll, I'll take that positively. This is going to be a really long podcast. How long is it? Infinite. Some new listeners to the podcast might not know that that this podcast, if you go all the way back to episode one, was actually from a panel at EGX. If you know this, don't worry. Uh, you can listen to Steve in the first episode, which was slightly bad quality, I think, in in audio. But So we're trying to redress that by having you back on the show and uh with with better equipment high production values and you know his own starring role it may have been bad quality in equipment but it was superb content yeah incredible infinite yeah. content. <laughs> <laughs> so uh for people that don't know you like you've got like quite a distinguished career i don't want to go through the whole point but like some of the highlights are some of i think our favorite games is Bioshock Infinite, John Wick Hex, and uh, another favourite of mine, which is Dishonored. Dishonored 2, in fact. Yeah, just Dishonored 2, not one. But yeah. I mean, really, you've worked on some of the most influential levels in game design out there. These are all, all the ones that, that have really impacted me anyway, and that means that those are the best ones. <laughs> to be clear, I didn't work on the levels that everybody talks about from Dishonored 2. I didn't, I didn't work on the... What is the one? The temp travel one in the um... Northern Clockwork Mansion. No, yeah, yeah, but yeah, I was really, I was really happy to work on Dishonored Two. Like Dishonored One is one of my, probably one of my favorite games of all time. So I was like super happy to work on that. I've worked in AAA for like ten years after Dishonored Two, and like uh, that was like the fourth one, and it was a lot of moving around for every. I, I literally moved country for every game I worked on in ten years of AAA. I moved to, so I worked on a game called Wheelman. Uh, up in Newcastle in England, but then I moved to Warsaw in Poland to work on Bulletstorm, and then, yeah, Boston in, in the US for Infinite, and uh, yeah, France for Descendant 2. And so it was really like, it was really a time in my life when I was just chasing jobs, basically. And uh, yeah, seeing the, the latest trailer to a game that I really wanted to work on, I go, oh, that looks really cool. And being lucky enough to get land it, you chased each of those jobs quite successfully, to be fair. <laughs> so. I'm trying to, I mean, obviously, there, there were. Interviews I didn't yeah. land and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was yeah the dishonored one was really kind of 
good timing in a lot of ways, I think. But, you know, like in current situation, like, do you think this is going to be a continuing trend that people like have to travel to completely different countries to to work on games? Well, given the current circumstances, remote working might become more of a thing, although maybe not in AAA. I still don't know if remote is really practical for, you know, long term for AAA. But yeah, yeah. But um, I suppose it is in the sense, you know, especially if you're as if you're fussy like me about the kind of games you like and stuff like there's not many you know if you love first person shooters let's say there's not many first person shooters there's only a handful you can pick from in the world if you if you want to work on triple a ones you know so to some degree it will, it will definitely always help if you're willing to move for sure you know it's not like it's not like uh, i don't know web development or something where like every company in every country want needs a website um it's it's uh, yeah there's it's quite niche, isn't it? Yeah, like say, if you're fussy, you've got to you got to be willing to move around, or it helps, you know. Um, certainly in AAA. One of the things that I always wondered was, I mean, you've had like a very illustrious career, but you you managed to go to, yeah, Wheelman is like a pretty big game for someone that came out of university, right? Yeah, I was. I remember being really happy with that because I just to kind of get into the AAA end of things was my goal basically. Uh, like you know, I was always really into the first-person games in general. And Wheelman wasn't first person, but I was just happy to be in a, you know, pretty big-budget-looking thing, relatively speaking. And uh, it was, you know, it was novel that it was a it was a Vin Diesel game as well. It was after um, Butcher Bay, but uh, yeah, it was like a third-person open-world kind of car chase thing. Um, and yeah, and I was I was really happy to um, get into the AAA end of things. And then like, yeah, Bulletstorm after that was the the first first person mm-hmm. shooter game which was kind of the big draw for me at the time as well as moving to Poland which was kind of you know quite an adventure as well yeah I've kind of always been into the AAA end of things really e- even though my last few years have been like freelance and working with smaller teams and indie stuff like like including like the John Hex thing and uh, John, John Wick thing but yeah I'm, I'm glad to have got the AAA thing which was your favorite city I have a soft spot for Warsaw I really loved Warsaw in terms of mm. it kind of got me out of my shell and I, I hadn't traveled a huge amount before that at all like really and so that was a big part of it as well the other part of it was just moving to another place as soon as I got there for the interview um I remember just thinking like I don't even know about the job but I, I, I'd love to do it. It be <laughs> bonkers uh, basically and yeah it was quite good fun and I just remember that it felt like so people can fly the company that made Bulletstorm they felt like a really as, as somebody who came from the kind of doom and quake lineage of, of level design you know, those were the games that got me into it. People Can Fly felt like a really nice place to be. I remember the first day I got, uh, I was there, I remember there was a, I think it was an artist sat a couple of desks away from me. He was, he had a Doom poster on his desk, but then he was just pl- sitting there playing electric guitar. And I was like, this is what video game <laughs> development used to be. Back in the day, people just playing electric guitar with Doom posters everywhere. Did he go outside, get into his Ferrari? Is, and uh... <laughs> Not until after the massive... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was a real big kind of adventure for me. And like, yeah, to kind of tick the, to do an old school shooter of sorts was really, yeah, satisfying for me. Where do you think the the biggest kind of bumps in your levels, level design knowledge, where do you feel like you made the biggest leap, leaps forward in terms of your, your expertise as you move through your career? In terms of how you thought you had a handle on how level design worked and how good you were at it, I guess. I mean, there was pretty interesting lessons from all of them. Like the Wheelman, the first game was interesting as a first thing because it was it was kind of being and this was a topic throughout development it was kind of pulled in two directions at once because it was an open world game 
you know, which is typically very systemic and emergent noise kind of thing. But we were consciously going for the scripted cinematic thing. So we were trying to script really controlled things in an open world where you can turn left at any point and you can turn. And we had to constantly think about well, what if the player just doesn't go down that road? And we had to make up excuses for blocking roads off. Um, and the game was set in Barcelona as well. It was, it was like an open world Barcelona. So it wasn't, you know, handcrafted pretend video game city where we could kind of contrive things a bit. Barcelona famously gridded, you can go anywhere at any point, can't right. you? Right, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, so that was a really interesting one there, just kind of seeing how the challenges of trying to do a game which is, is kind of has two parts of it that are maybe intention and, you know, sometimes in an interesting way and sometimes in a difficult way. I'd say Bioshock Infinite was a really big thing in terms of learning how a really story-driven thing has a lot of its own demands as well when it's kind of like this this part of the game really is about this thing that happens to Liz or this you know this thing that happens in the story and like and especially if that you know the process was quite intense at times and there's you know kind of things changing a lot and stuff like that so there's a lot of like everything coming in hot and like but trying to make it work in in this in a story way and not just getting gunplay and combat in there you know um, so that that was quite a, an intense one, I suppose. And then Dishonored was probably the most complicated I've worked on in terms of just the sheer amount of demands that on a level, it, it, like A, the density of a level and the scale of it, but also the, the the demands on the level from both a level design and an environment art perspective, where like both sides of the coin are really, it's we really care about everything. Like if this ledge is too high, level design is annoyed and if this if that ledge doesn't make sense environment is really annoyed and like and so there's a lot of discussion and, and thankfully you know that was the first team I worked on where the level designers and the environment artists actually sit next to each other like because we were working on the same mission for most of two or three years because it'd just be impossible to make a dishonored level or, or wouldn't be advised to do it without that kind of setup yeah just the sheer amount of complicated things you have to think about at every stage of a dishonor level i suppose when you're trying to get things done it's yeah that was a massive learning experience i suppose what's the most challenging thing about working at on a dishonored level when it, because you have all these abilities how do you even start thinking about creating a level from scratch for that kind of game i suppose i can only comment having worked on a sequel so it's like you know the one of the benefits of a sequel is that you kind of know what the game is and you know as much as there were lots of new powers in Dishonored 2, the scope of them wasn't hugely bigger than the first one. So in terms of like, for example, taking care of whether, if, whether or not the player can teleport out of the level somehow, like blink out of the level or something like that, you know, the, the, the scope of what the player could do physically was pretty similar and things like that. So yeah, working on a sequel is a, is a blessing in that sense. Really, it boils down to like, like say you, you quickly get a sense of like, well, okay, double jump plus upgraded blink plus spend time means you can do this and possess maybe possess is occasionally a nightmare yeah just you you, you end up beca- being quite good at coming up with excuses for buildings to be quite tall <laughs> <laughs> and like uh, to, and justifying it's like the you know in a shooter you're always coming good at justifying crate shaped things in your level and stuff like this it's like in dishonored yeah you, especially because we care about the the world building and the you know Karnaka is a believable place and stuff you know you think quite early on like okay it's, if your if your map is set in the streets, then we need reasons for these streets to be blocked off, and we need and the artist needs to come up with a way to block them off in a way that doesn't just look like a, a video game street blocked off for no reason. And vertically as well, so like the blocking off is actually going way above all the other other buildings anyway. Yeah, yeah, and then which is an interesting one because then 
because on one hand dishonored you know this the art direction and the architectural reference usually involves quite grand tall buildings and stuff but at, at the same time you know one of the kind of aspects of the dishonored fantasy is is the assassin who skulks around on rooftops right so you need some rooftops that you can get to but then you need to be able to make sure that the rooftops next to it are so high that you can't get to them and stuff like that but it's yeah it's kind of i don't know if you if you go in in there with that in mind from the start and like i say if you played the first one and you're kind of quite familiar with it it's it's manageable thankfully but then there's even once you get all that stuff done it's it's usually the the nitty gritty of like the particulars of your level that are the complicated thing to think about uh, like like in my in my case, I worked on the dust district, and that the thing about that level was that there were two factions and two targets, and civilians in the middle of it, and so you could in, you could choose to infiltrate either building with either target, and then you the goal was to, unless you do one of the kind of alternate ways of doing a mission, the goal was to bring back the body of one of the leaders and take it to the other one. The nightmares there aren't so much things like oh what if the player can jump out of the level, but it's more like, what if the player possesses the leader of this faction and walks over to the other side of the map and usually that's okay because the the response is then this npc gets angry at you and starts a fight and that's kind of managed but then there are loads of cases where it's like oh but what if they walk past like this is the leader of this gang who people know in the area what if you walk past the civilians don't they talk about that and then suddenly it's like oh maybe we need some backs for like if yeah if a civilian sees the npc at this leader in this area of town and then what happens when you unpossess him and the leader of the of this faction is suddenly found himself like in the middle of a, a street market? What does he do? And that, there's this lo- that, that's the weirdest stuff. More than the kind of ninja player jumping around all over the place stuff, it's more the kind of the narrative details of like, what if, yeah, like possession's a nightmare. Um, well, it can be a nightmare with, with, when there's a lot of important characters basically. But yeah, it tends not to be the actual like where the player can go stuff because that's relatively easy to be able to get a handle on. You know, once you you get a feel for like, we know that upgraded blink is six meters far, for example, and stuff like that, you can kind of start. I think we we came up with a little measuring tool in in the editors to check stuff like that a bit quicker. But even that's quite fuzzy because then you've got like running sprint jumps off ledges and then blinking and stuff like that. It's quite tricky. The other one that kind of fruit is quite different to most of the games. Because I come from like a, in terms of scripting narrative stuff, like Half-Life 2 is a big one for me, where, you know, you become good at creating situations where you walk around a corner and it looks like all kinds of stuff has been happening all this time, when really, obviously, you just set it up to happen when you walk around that corner. I, I learned quickly on, early on with Dishonored how you can't do that because the player can stop time and teleport. So if you stop time and you've set, if, if, the, if you've scripted something to trigger and, you know, kick into action when the player walks around the corner... Uh, or even four corners away, you know, the player could stop time five corners away, double blink and just run towards that event. And then either there's an NPC who isn't even there, or maybe the NPC is still playing, it's kind of getting ready to do things animation before you're supposed to see it and stuff like that. And yeah, there's lots of nightmares. And so you basically got to set up most of the level to truly be alive yeah. all the time, at least in yeah. some basic way. It's hard to hide know? things basically when you have all these abilities. You just can't have a trigger box that like unleashes all the like bad guys. Mm. Yeah, so you got to think in terms of like everybody has a patrol path. Well, most of them have a patrol path. Everybody has an idle animation or something they're doing when they're not doing anything. So that if the player just happens to be able to pause and just get there somehow, 
you can you can see it and it looks reasonable you know yeah having too many trigger boxes and especially big ones would be a nightmare for performance so there has to be other ways to work around that Mm, you've got yeah. to think four four dimensionally <laughs> well I, I suppose it like i said it kind of forces you to truly simulate things to some degree um which is which usually helps and ends up helping the game in a way as well because then you it it's cool when you as a player when you notice that oh wow that's that's actually kind of working how you'd expect it to and you know there's things like and sometimes you get that for free because of the way the game works and sometimes you kind of script it to support this cool thing that should happen you know there's a part in the overseer kind of building where there's a scene where I kind of borrowed an idea from Dishonored One, but did it a bit differently. There's a scene where one overseer is injured and lying on a bed, and the, and his friend is kind of mercy killing him because he's he's not going to make it basically. And they go through this whole speech, and then he puts he pulls his sword out and and uh, puts it in, I think in his neck and just kills him basically, but in this kind of mercy kill kind of way. And um, it occurred to us at one point that oh, if you possess the guy who is getting the sword put in his neck. You should die when the sword goes in your neck, and then <laughs> and that wasn't you know damage wasn't being caused to that NPC, so we had to set that up in the cutscene kind of thing, but then as soon as that damage is caused to the NPC and they actually die in terms of the game state and stuff, if you possess that guy, then you do die because that's that is handled by the system, and it's, yeah it was, it was nice when kind of stuff like that comes out of just simulating things properly that's kind of amazing that's a lesson for life don't possess someone that's about to be killed right <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing how much detail there is in that game because you would think you know if it was maybe another studio they'd be like oh just disable it for that person so you can possess him and problem solved boom bam and you don't even like work on it but then you actually left the ability to be able to possess it and you actually die that's that's kind of a a nice thing to happen with the existing systems of the game and you can accidentally encounter it and be surprised by it. I think that's uh, that's the magic that Arcane Studio games have, uh, Prey and Dishonored to have all these kind of like different systems working together and they create these magic moments that you may not even see. And it's a tiny thing if you imagine, it's not like, it's not even part of the game, you can just do it. And there, there will be an outcome that's that will work with the game and it's not going to crash or create a bug or something. Do you think that's how they did Prey? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Prey goes, is, is in some ways even more simulated and kind of systemic than Dishonored, I'd say, mm. with it being kind of an, a mini open world type kind of thing. Yeah. Obviously, like with Dishonored being quite an open-ended game, and I guess like each of the levels were almost like sandboxes in themselves, was there ever, a, ever like a point where you had to draw the line and be like, this is not, necessarily going to be seen like when do you draw the line of not supporting what could potentially be possible for the player to achieve like was there ever a rule box in place for that or was it just you had to try and account for every eventuality we try to always support things that should make should happen according to the way the game yeah. works mm -hmm. but then and if there was ever a situation that but basically we try to avoid designing situations in the first place that that creates yeah, situations yeah. that we couldn't wouldn't be able to support like that and that's what if a situation came up with just too many what if what about if the player does this you know maybe it would be a unfortunately you know that the two leads level design leads on the team you know they were they were the same ones from dishonored one but also like that they've been working together at arcane for a long time so that they, they were used to the whole what if what about this kind of conversation i don't know if there's a hard rule for it so you're always just kind of judging 
like how much of a nightmare is this going to be for us versus how cool is it going to be and does it does it make sense within the context of the game and the level and stuff like that i, I always find it can be quite a fascinating conversation because obviously every game has its own rule set or its own systemic design to a degree and obviously that conversation always has to be had like in in every mission like how far do you go with the what if scenario and some really cool stuff always comes out of it as well because like yeah but what if they approach this way and then you can get something really cool out of that as well. But it's always fascinating. So I find it interesting to see how different people approach it from different styles of games. Yeah, and I think the what-ifs are what take the longest time in development. This is why the game is delayed or this is why there's takes time to... This is what we call polish. We kind of have to like work around all the situations. Otherwise, if we didn't have to work around them, we'd just release the first version yeah it's, it's also why you'll it you iterate on levels so much right it's like yeah, yeah that first implementation it's like oh yeah that's cool but it only works if i play it in this one very specific yeah. way and then you start iterating on it and fleshing it out so yeah because when you play it as a designer you play it as intended usually you might stray away here and there but then when someone else plays like a game tester comes and plays it and and you see just the different ways and it's just like you're just biting your nails why are you you playing it that way stop it but then you realize yeah this is yeah the first version that you put out there is very very rough i think another part of it is is on the game design side as well and and also the programming side like the way I think it becomes easier for level designers to answer some of those questions when a lot of the problems are solved by good game designers and programmers who are programming things in a very systemic way from the beginning because they know that this is the kind of game it is. And so, you know, in that in, in the example I gave where I had to add a little thing to make sure that the player died if you possess that guy who's been killed, I didn't say anything like, like that specific where it's like if, if the player possesses this guy, you die. It was more that I had, I only had to add the the pain impulse in the animation to say that this NPC dies. And then, like I said, the, the game handled the player doing it, you know? And so there's a lot of, and it, it goes to the, t- the same thing applies to the, how do you kind of cater for the insane amount of things the player can do? Thankfully, half of that job is done for you by good game design in the sense of the people designing the mechanics are thinking about, well, what are the, is this too much? At one point, it sounded like one of the upgrades to possession would be that you could possess the head of a corpse like a severed head <laughs> which would, which we quickly somebody must have quickly realized that's nuts because then suddenly you could possess a physics object and you could throw yourself over buildings and all kinds of stuff but like no, no that's yeah, a game that, mechanic that i'm much. adding i'm definitely adding <laughs> yeah, that would have been a perfect perfect successor to the thief idol yeah <laughs> you could actually throw a dead head you see around corners this sort of head sitting there looking at people brilliant so game design making those kind of judgments like that's too mm-hmm. much solves that problem yeah. design, you know? I mean you, you also have to hope that they do see that's too much because otherwise it ends up in front of you it's like oh I made this really cool thing yeah maybe not it's like as much as it's too but I do like the opportunity to experiment with stuff like that like sometimes it doesn't make a sense of game like you use the example of possessing a head as soon as you run through so I guess so many simulations in your mind or so many ideas you kind of suddenly realize yes these are cool but he's the bag of worms it opens up if it actually goes into the game this idea was expanded in Prey, though, right? So you can possess inanimate objects and just jump and move around. That's them. true. Yeah, that's true. So that must be that kind of worms was opened afterwards. <laughs> <I guess>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I suppose they did it in a completely enclosed spaceship. 
which is the although that. you can go outside you can go in, in you space, can but it's i don't think you can really well possess yeah i don't think you can possess something and go into space but i guess you could possess something in space i mean not that it'll matter you'd just be floating but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly yeah i've got space that ha space handles it basically which is <laughs> but you've been after all these games after that you came back and started working as a freelance game developer really focusing on level design which is how you found white paper games or you already knew them because you worked on the occupation as well yeah i, I consulted with them a little bit and uh, visited them in up at the studio a bunch of times helping out with the discussion on like level design stuff and some narrative design stuff and systems -y stuff well it's still my only kind of indie first person game i've worked on so it's cool to work on something that was immersive sim like but on a smaller scale you know it's cool i noticed you had them on your on this podcast, right? Yeah, I talked to Peter like, at Develop last year. The Occupation, for those who haven't played it, is, is, is kind of like a game that just takes about four hours. Like, it's real-time four hours. It, someone stopped me from getting this wrong. I, should, I think I have an Occupation t-shirt. In, in an environment that, that people are patrolling and real things are happening in those four hours, you have to kind of complete the game in, the, in those four hours. So this is kind of going back to what you were saying about Dishonored, which you got, you can't really fake a lot of that. That the, the people are doing their patrols and stuff. Or at least you have to up your game with the faking. I imagine there is. Like, I think there's always. I think it's just the nature of game development that you're always faking as much as you can so that you can do stuff as best as you can. Basically, like you know, and like I said, there's there's some stuff with certain games that you can't fake, or you you know you gotta <laughs> fake better. <laughs> but like, but I think yeah, you're always kind of trying to find the cleverest way of doing things so you can do more kind of thing. Uh, to be honest, I don't know the ins and outs of what they, what's truly going on in the background of, of uh, the occupation if, if you're in like a different building and stuff like that. I do recall that, yeah, the key NPCs are like still walking around and have, have routines and all this kind of stuff. And they can get tired and distracted and also can notice stuff, which I guess has happened in some other games, but not to that level. If you leave a door open, they'll be like, wait a minute, why is that door open? And then they'll stop their routine and go in and investigate that room and and uh, you know you got to be hiding there it's a very interesting one but your next big role was at, at john wick hex uh, with bithel games now that's a bit different for someone that's been doing first person yeah that was that was really kind of random and, and awesome in the sense that like i remember I, I saw the tweet that mike sent out about looking for uh, level designers and he was living in London at the time. He's not anymore, but and I'm here in London. So we, we when I got in touch, uh, we, you know, we met up and stuff. And when he told me it was John Wick, I was like, really? And I, it kind of took a moment to like think, how did you get that? That's amazing. And, and I'm, 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 you know, I'm a big like action movie slash martial arts geek as well. So like I, that was really, I've kind of been designing that kind of game in my head for a while. And so that was really like, oh, wow, I'd love to be on this. Like, and yeah, it was really nice to work on something that felt, it ticked a few boxes in terms of being like an old school game where you just you're a guy who just beats everybody up and gets to the end of the level and there's like this many levels and you just got to do it and they get harder and you know I, I like the idea of working and also working on the entire campaign as well so like yeah there was there was it was me and an artist but in terms of the level design of it I did because they were they're relatively simple you know in terms of the complexity of what goes on so yeah it was within scope for me to basically be, I was basically the level designer, I, I did all of them kind of thing, based on concept art they already had and, and art assets they already had and stuff like this. So for people that haven't played John Wick Hex, it's basically a kind of XCOM 
that's a really bad analogy, but it's an XCOM timed. You got like time units, so you can move or reload, or and if you do like a throttle, you know that takes X amount of time compared to a reload. Yeah, it's like, it's like pseudo real time tactical thing. Yeah, like because uh, it it wasn't like yeah, it's like if you you move one step forward and that's like your turn, but then as you move, the world moves as well, kind of thing. So it's like super hot was the game that we often like like a tactical super hot. But with like guns and martial arts, which is cool. Because I helped out with some of the mechanic stuff as well. And like, I remember it was just at the same time that Mike did his trip to presumably LA to, he met the stunt team and did a bit of like uh, martial arts stuff with them just to kind of get a feel for it. I think there's a bit, as a, as a clip on a, on a DVD somewhere, uh, on the John Wick DVD, in fact, the, the third film. So it, basically, it turns out that John Wick, his, the martial arts style he does is like a mix of jujitsu. And Aikido, and I'm really into and judo, and I'm I'm really like my brother teaches jujitsu, and I'm quite into that particular thing. So I was like, oh, we got a, I kind of gave a few kind of suggestions on how we could get it more like jujitsu rather than like more specific to that thing, and uh, yeah, it was really satisfying to kind of help. I suppose another one thing is just that it was really satisfying to help out with the, not just the martial arts thing, in a in a combat game, but also like to help out with the game design on a game where I was making the levels for it it's really useful when you can say like this would be really useful for me as a mechanic and that this is how in combination with these levels we i think we could create something that feels like john wick you know like and a key like a key thing for the levels on that game was that it had to be all about really tight spaces like even like in the films i think in the films it has to be tight spaces well it's kind of the same thing in the sense that in both instances you've basically got to justify why people aren't just shooting john wick in the head from 10 meters away and uh, so he's got to have cover all the time, or he's got to be moving so fast that there's an excuse that he, you know, that guy with the gun didn't get him. And so, yeah, one one of my first level design tests was like creating. It was basically a level made from the first level design test I did, which is a level where it was literally you just dancing between columns. It it was in a museum, like an art museum, in the end. And it was basically the tightest possible level I could think of, where you're just constantly dancing in and out of cover while you beat up guys who. You can see and then you can't see if you move into the square and all this kind of thing into the cell so yeah it was all about like the level design and that was realizing it was all about even though we were especially mike uh he was like super conscious of the idea that it's not a cover shooter but still line of sight is incredibly important to it even though it wasn't about hiding like poking up and down from cover kind of thing yeah so that was really nice to work on a game like that and you know in contrast to first person shooters in a way and like i say i kind of got to scratch the itch of making a martial artsy thing as well because is it uh, i guess that martial artsy thing looks much better from like a third person perspective than it would do in like in first person i mean i guess dishonored a little mm. bit but you're not doing like you know throws or like punches oh yeah totally like yeah. It, 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 it's going to look epic from third person yeah totally and uh yeah i think and there's also that i think that's uh, the first person versus third thing and it's also like i think a lot of it was interesting how it made me realize how different people see John Wick in a, in their own way, in the sense that for me, because I like martial arts stuff and um, I, I kind of know a bit about jujitsu, broadly speaking, like to me, John Wick is a martial arts film with guns in it, whereas to other people, it's, he's kind of a, a tactical guns guy who occasionally does martial arts. And so I, I remember I felt like I was, I was always trying to pull it in the martial artsy direction, partly because, you know, not just because I like martial arts, but because I felt like that was where the, the depth and the mechanics was as well. You know, if ultimately in John Wick shooting someone, it was just literally just clicking on them. Whereas to to get close to them and to decide how to, where you're going to move to after you throw somebody 
to be in a better position the next turn and stuff like that was yeah to me that was where all the meat of the game was in terms of tactical decisions and stuff like that it's, it's one of those games where, like, like most games i suppose where it would have been great to have more time and to kind of really flesh things out we all hope for that right we all get to the point where it's like this would be much better if i could do this as well <laughs> but, but how you take that i think is instead of just like you know going oh damn it i wish i could have done this for this game is you then take all of those ideas and put them in a book and then mm. you say hey this is what i would have or so not is of what i would have done this is what you should do right so i assume what yeah. you're getting out there Mark, i'm setting you up maybe is that <laughs> yeah cheers i'm answering about mentioning it because i think i'll ever finish it but basically yeah i've started writing a level design book which i started writing it like a few years ago now and uh it's deliberately going the idea is for it to be a small one like a it's very much it's kind of a ripoff of um the idea of uh, a series of books a uh, hundred one things i learned at so-and-so school like architecture school being the big one for the for level design and um yeah but it's it's really it's i've got a wonky first draft done but it's it's hard to write because I'm, I'm really one thing i'm really conscious of and i feel like it's almost one of the most important things about level design to teach is that it's really different for every game like you know the way that you design a space in even within first like military first person shooters is different depending on all kinds of things about those games like what you know whether or not this game has vehicles in and you have to traverse spaces in vehicles and on foot or all this kind of thing and so there's and so it's quite hard to be prescriptive about level design in a way that doesn't feel like you're kind of telling some you're giving somebody bad advice if they interpret it badly yeah you know, like in the wrong game but if you put tips in it if you just say it's a tip it's not like a, it's not like a it's not yeah, like a yeah, law it's, it's, it's not like a, a thousand, 101 laws of uh... you run the risk of being too generalistic i guess if you if you if you're reduced to just saying things that are true for every kind of level design it's going to be so general as to be useless so yeah that's that's a that's a challenge <laughs> yeah but 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 you're right in the sense that i think there is I mean, I'm, I'm trying to find the ways of saying like this is a useful principle that applies to a lot of things and basically you know preface the book saying like getting that point made clearly early on that it's really depends on the game but if i was to do another talk which i would now i go up and like back and forth on the idea of doing another talk i would want it to be about how to figure out how to do level design for your game you know like um because it's it's really that's the question really i feel like you know a lot of all the gdc talks are like hey this is how we did our game and there's usually there's usually a kind of promotional element to it and there's also like this is how we did it our game and then i feel so i feel like a lot of all you've got to learn from from that is like the risk there is that you're you're encouraging people to take things from a game that isn't theirs and kind of make it work in their game which is really yeah tricky like but um so yes i'm working on a book that is quite hard to write but i, I am enjoying it though. When, when i go back to it i just feel like it's like i say i go up and down in terms of like feeling yeah this is going to be amazing this is this is going to be the, it you know especially because it's quite different i feel like game design books have a history of being really thick and textbooky and kind of they do try to be really comprehensive especially about game design in general like it's really hard to do that i think um so i like the idea of doing something that is not only about level design but like really quite concise and a different approach yeah. i think any book that you can pick up and read a couple of things whilst you're having a coffee and go, and, and spark imagination right spark ideas because yeah i mean if you have a like out of the, those 101 tips that you're going to give on level design, if you read a few every day, they're going to spark imagination or some things, even if they're not related to the game, that mechanic that you're kind of developing for. Peter Field has been talking, just did a video on The Last of Us, and he had a whole bunch of 
tips that he was going were really specific to The Last of Us, right? They're like super specific to, to, to that. But what's interesting to say is like, well, as an example is, you know, if you're trying to, in one game you go up and then you come back down, right? And you go like, go up, you go to a sunny bit, which is meant to be like, oh, it was tough. It's now, uh, you know, narratively it's now happier. Now you do your level design going to much depth lower thing that simple rise and, and and fall can help with your narration as an example um by the way i just made that up so <laughs> but you can have that for free you know yeah that makes sense another example here was the um, spoilers for the last of us with the scene with the giraffe where there was the anticipation building before the reveal that's something that is generic that can be applied to your game too if you want to reveal something maybe build anticipation you don't have to do it exactly like they did but you make your own rules, you make your use your own mechanics, and the idea behind it is still can be universal. Yeah, there are definitely a bunch of sections on that, like, which I am fairly sure will go in. Like, you know, like I said, generic general principles, like the idea that the identity of something is always made stronger by kind of its opposite, you know? So like if you want to make a vista seem like epic and amazing, it, it, it feels even better if you, if the player experiences that vista when coming from a place that is small and cramped and cold and tight, you know? And it, in fact, we kind of really deliberately did that at the start of the dust districts. You, you kind of start the level in a kind of an underground canal in a very kind of textbook dishonored way. And you come out of this kind of cold, blue, wet, cramped, stony, walled kind of underground cave of sorts. And then as soon as you step outside, you hit, it's like a massive vista of the dust district. It's dry and it's warm and it's red and it's, super open and like it was really satisfying because it was like the most a it was really nice that the artist had exactly the same idea about how we were going to do that and why it would work but then then when we saw like the playtest footage of some yeah lots of playtesters playing it like three different playtesters did like a proper Keanu Reeves like, <laughs> when they saw the vista and I generally you know and the point there is that they they were not going they weren't, they weren't just going well at the vista but they were going well at the kind of the experience of transitioning from the opposite of that vista to the vista. And so the, the things like, yeah, there's principles like that that I think are pretty useful. To... Yeah, I think that works in storytelling too with uh, the contrast idea in general. Look, if you write a scene, it has to, the the way it starts and the way it ends uh, can be contrasted for a bigger impact. I'm not an expert about that, but I did, I think it was in the um, uh, storybook by Robert McKee, is that, is that actually? Yeah, McKee, it was yeah. principles like that that kind of be applied to, I guess, not just story, but also like the level design. There's something so powerful about games in that the player, when they see a vista like that or see something that they're not expecting, that the as well as the sort of visual impact of it and the, the wonder and the, 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 uh, the kind of um, complementary aspect of the difference between where they were and where they ended up, but also the the sudden expansion of the possibility space and what they understand they're going to have to do next. They see a tall building, they know, oh my God, I'm going to climb that building. They see a bridge, like the, the Half-Life 2 bridge, stretching across the water, you think, wow, I'm going to go across that bridge. And like with your example, Steve, you see the dust district before you and you go, this is not what I expected from a Dishonored game. And suddenly I've got this huge playground to go in. So it's it's all those feelings going through the player, you're thinking... Wow, I can be doing this and this and this and this and this, and they take that, all that combined in such a special way just for games. Yeah, yeah, and especially if it points to kind of like you say a, a, a broader understanding of what the game is or something like that. Like you just made me think of um, my favorite bit in Fallout Three, 
which I like to talk about. It's it's um a bit quite early on when you go to Mega Megaton, a little town. I remember I'd, I was playing a, as like a good guy generally, and I remember I found this guy who was clearly a bad guy. Like he's got a bad guy voice. He looks a bit shady. He's sitting in the pub, and I and there's a there's a a nuke at the middle of Megaton, right? He asks you to blow the bomb up and blow up the town. And you can tell that, and I'm like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so I went to the sheriff of the town. I told the sheriff and that, and he was like, well, we've got to sort this guy out now. And we, and we go over together to the bad guy. And I'm like, right, we're going to do this guy in. And then out of nowhere, kind of while there, I, I can't remember what it was, how much of a cut scene it was or not, or what the kind of thing was there. But basically during gameplay, as far as I remember it, the bad guy just ends up just shooting the sheriff in front of me. And I was like, whoa, what? And then I was like, oh man. And I felt like it's kind of not betrayed because it felt, basically it was really interesting to me because I tried to be the good guy and actually save the day, but it got the sheriff killed. And I thought, wow, is this the kind of world where, it, it, you know, it speaks to the idea that this is the kind of world where even good intentions can end up with, you know, bad things happening. And if suddenly the world felt more alive and it felt like it wasn't just, you know, go to point A and then do step B and you get you know, reward C. It was, it was way more, it felt like a world to me. And it, yeah, I remember, I remember just thinking if the rest of the game is like this, that's amazing. Like it's just the sense that it's real people you're dealing with and not just like, you know, NPC mission vendors who are going to. And missions that are very prescribed, right? Because like you didn't, ex you, you would have expected that the sheriff shot the guy, you gained some credits or caps or something like that and that leads to another branch of your character development within that game but now you're like what now now you've got a sheriff killed and the guy's still pointing a gun at you right and there's also the knowing that i could have you know because that was the vet system where you can kind of stop time and shoot people i could have just shot him first but i wasn't fast enough and i got the sheriff killed and it's little like knowing that i could have done it differently as well it's a huge part of it and does that make you want to uh, reload the save and change the outcome. I, I can't remember if I did. Because that's a big thing with, uh, for example, Dishonored 2 or Dishonored 1, is um, being able, if you, if you fail a stealth section, be able to load back and be like, I'm going to retry it. <laughs> so I wonder, with those kind of outcomes in games, how much people do actually rewind or reload a different save and get back into it. I, I had that with the Overseer in, in Dishonored 1. If you remember, he's he's in his, behind that kind of fake fireplace, in the kind of high bit above a large room with lots of um, hanging lamps. And I did this incredible uh, series of blink moves, which I've never been able to replicate, <laughs> where I bounced across all the lights and no one saw me. And I slid through the fireplace and killed the overseer. And this is approximately about two minutes into the level, I thought, oh no, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't want to end it that quickly. So I reloaded and did it all differently, even yeah. though it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the hope with that stuff is that, like, I remember thinking about that and thinking, like, I'm a, it's totally cool for me if, like, People reloading their games a lot in Dishonored. Like I do that a lot, and I like it. I like to think that players do that because it it helps them explore the possibility space of what all the interesting things they can do. I suppose the ones where you'd hope that they stick with narrative consequences. I, I'm okay with them. Like, oh, I didn't want to kill that guy. Reload my game, kind of thing. Although I suppose it's it's tricky because that gameplay is kind of woven with the narrative. But like generally, I, I think it's cooler when maybe negative narrative stuff happens, but you kind of live with it and you just accept that as part of the game and part of the narrative. It's great that you can have a, a world that's resilient enough to do that. For example, your, your example of Fallout 3, the world scripting was resilient enough to cope with that eventuality and it ran with it and you felt like it was part of your story rather than something you felt like you'd done 
wrongly and it had gone wrong and you'd had a suboptimal outcome and things felt a little bit broken. Yeah, and also just the genuine sense of surprise. Like it's it's really, it's so, like in storytelling and screenwriting, surprise is kind of the whole, not like, you know, massive jack-in-a-box surprises, but just like not knowing what's going to happen next and being, yeah, surprised to some degree all the time is part of storytelling. I feel like in games there's way too much, and I'm going to get ranty here, like there's there's a lot of stuff in games which is just kind of, when you think about it, you kind of knew it was always, it's just another quest where you do this, or it's just another thing where you do this. And like genuine surprises are so rare that it's like they really stand out and they should be, I mean, it's hard to do, so they should be more normal ideally, but it's, it's hard to do. But it's just, yeah, all the memorable stuff is surprises, right? Like it makes me think of... But you have to have like a balance. Like for example, in the original XCOM, right? your favorite guys will suddenly get shot by an alien from somewhere, right? And that's what you, you, you start expecting that. You, you're expecting that the game is random enough that people don't matter, that, that your players don't, well, your players, your, your pawns don't matter in the game. But in this, you had, like, all the signifiers of it mattering, right? It was like, this guy obviously has a story arc that I'll figure out later or whatever, and it getting cut down, you're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But that was, to me, that again, that, that makes the, that's part of what makes the XCOM thing memorable, is that when it kind of breaks, you realise that no nobody on your team is special and, and everybody can die and all that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, uh, yeah, like I say, it, yeah, it just reminded me of another kind of all-time great moment for me. And it was in like, uh, oh, I hope I don't get this wrong. I think it was Metro 2033. Um, a first-person shooter thing, quite story-driven first-person shooter uh, made in, oh, I don't want to get this wrong, I think it was made in Ukraine by A, A4. They had a, a weird team name, I can't remember. But they, there was a, yeah, yeah, they, um, uh, there was a, it's kind of an underground section where you're in a minecart, in one of those minecarts where, like, somebody stood on the back pushing it up and down to go. And uh, this is a world where there's, like, it's kind of post-apocalyptic with these weird, mutated alien things around and you're going down this mine cat thing and there's you know a typical half-life style you're on a train and there's dialogue going kind of cutsceney thing and then it turns into what seems like a typical kind of on rails shooter thing where aliens are coming at you and you've got to shoot these guys as you're speeding down this track uh shoot the aliens before with your teammate npc guys and then i remember i remember i was working on bulletstorm at the time where we had a lot of really scripted on rails shooting sections as well and where we didn't really take into account what happens if the player does this very, very much, I don't think. But in Metro 2033, in the section, I remember you're shooting at the aliens, and at some point it just feels like, oh, there's too many of them, I can't keep up. And they, they grab one of your NPC guys off the tr- train and just pull him off. And they're like, oh, my God. And th- but then you kind of assume, oh, it's probably scripted, I'm going to keep going and shoot all these geezers, uh, all the aliens. And then at some point they get to you, or in my playthrough at least, because I don't know, I think it doesn't. Ha- it's not scripted. They got to me and they threw me off the train and I figured, well, okay, that's game over. I was waiting for the game to kind of fade to black and the game just continued and the minecart just sped down the track away from me and I was like, what do I do now? Is the game like, come back, guys. Or something? And I was like, oh man, and I started sprinting down the track and, uh, you know, running after the train into, into the darkness after this train and the NPC is like shouting my name and I'm running towards the train and I'm thinking, like, is this still the game? Is this, I can't believe this is still happening. And I'm running towards the train. I jump back on and we start going again and I shoot my way out. I think that's a great moment, actually. Yeah, um, I remember that too. I was playing that game. But the the latest thing that I remember that surprised me as much as it, this did, well, like for you was like the Resident Evil 7 part. I don't know if you guys 
play Resident Evil. So just right at the beginning, where uh, spoiler alert, your your arm gets chopped off, and you're like, wait, is this? Uh, did I just lose the game? Is this game over? Is it a blast game? But then you actually play it like that, and there's a section where you continue playing, and that's just like this most surprising thing. You don't actually your main player character doesn't get mutilated and survive and there's gameplay moments happening after that usually it's game over um so that's yeah right you get the fade yeah, to black so then right? that's very much a thing i think it's in the same category of what you're describing yeah yeah just this when you when the game it goes to another level of kind of immersion because there's a genuine like i don't know how this works <laughs> there's a genuine like how yeah. what do i do now Whereas, you know, basically in old games, you kind of know how the game works. You know, it's all being balanced so that you can make this fight, you know, with the weapons you have and all this kind of stuff. And just those moments when the game actually dares to let you be outside of that comfort bubble in an interesting way, in a genuinely dramatic way. It's like, oh, I thought that was what video games were for. We should all be doing that. Brilliant. Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just so completely baffle players all the time. Yeah, like a change genre halfway through. It's like I thought. Wait, I thought this was a first-person shooter. Wait, did it, wasn't that what Fahrenheit did? And it didn't work out so well, though, did it? Uh, I don't know if it changed genre. It just the story. Oh yeah, I, I loved half of Fahrenheit, like the good bits of Fahrenheit. Yeah. I loved. Yeah, yeah, that was um, actually one of my favorite games. And then it just kind of shifted direction. I was not ready for it. That's yeah, that was I mean, like narratively, it certainly yeah, went weird. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I remember think the I mean the demo of that game was basically the first fifteen minutes of it, and with the split screen stuff. Yeah. I don't know if, if you got yeah, and it's just like I, that was one of the games and demos where I remember playing that and thinking, this is the future of games. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I want. This is what I want games to be. I want them to be really interactive, cinematic things where it feels like I'm genuinely thinking with some degree of real world logic and making interesting choices that have consequences on the narrative. And because yeah, as much as like the whole systemic stealth get that kind of dishonored end of systemic gameplay is is really interesting to me like just it genuinely interactive cinematic feeling stuff is still one of the things i'm kind of most interested in and not just cinematic in the kind of like it looks like a movie and not anything to do with the less interactive side of cinema but just the dramatic quality of cinema which i think games still struggle with a lot of the time and whenever a game manages to pull that off i'm like oh man this i remember like thinking this is just what games should be one of the things that games should be you know i i really love that stuff so yeah the the good bits of fahrenheit were amazing i thought is there a game you played recently that you that impressed you just as much i've got to say i'm a bit out of the loop i'm 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 reaching this point where i think i'm officially i'm I'm only playing i'm playing like old i find a lot of the stuff i'm playing at the moment is like remasters of old games that i liked like i just bought the command and conquer remastered thing and because i I love that game and I've, i've always I've kind of gone in and out of phases of still playing Red Alert online, that kind of weird freeware version of it. I think uh, one recent game which really just completely uh, threw me and did so many unexpected things was Edith Finch, Mm. where Mm, I I genuinely didn't know where it was going when each uh, vignette happened. Some of them were more conventional than others, but uh, some of them were just... uh, devastatingly emotional and <laughs> really joyous and it was really a, a very fascinating um, uh, exercise in not giving the player what they expect 
mm. just taking it into the realms of fantasy. Yeah. I think also Edith Fitch had some moments where you knew what was going to happen, but you didn't want it to, which is kind of the opposite, oh, but yeah. it's also a great, yeah. Yeah. a great way to <laughs> bring drama to the game. It's just like, oh, okay, no, I no, found no. It, yeah. I know what's going to happen. Please don't, please don't. And then it just happens and just hits you just as hard, I think, as uh, something yeah. surprising you. Yeah. Particularly when you're given the option to delay that and you do delay it and you delay it and you delay it and you think well actually I've got to let this happen (laughs) and that's a painful thing to to understand that this is something that effectively has happened and you just got to let it happen even if it's a tragedy okay I've got to go back to it now uh, but like, (laughs) but I I, yeah that's an interesting one because that makes me think of weirdly it made me think of uh, another world like this really old 16-bit game and which which is kind of a precursor it was one of the inspirations behind Ico apparently and uh all kinds of things and it's like one of the things about that which again feels really cinematic that game feels even though it's another side-scrolling you know actiony game it feels really cinem- cinematic because i think partly because i think the mechanics throughout that game change all the time like it's not just a game about jumping and shooting it's like you do all kinds of stuff at some point in that game you're trapped in an alien tank and you're pressing you've got like a first person view of a keypad and you're just pressing loads of buttons hoping this alien tank will drive out of the, this place you're in and all, all kinds of weird stuff and um, that in itself makes it feel cinematic and, and I've got this theory that it's because and I think this is one of the reasons why games struggle with story in, in some ways is that like story and just to be clear I'm like a wannabe screenwriter so that's why I think about this stuff a lot like story is like <laughs> Ah, yeah. right, now it comes yeah. to light. Like, story is fundamentally something that changes all the time. Like, story is just change. That's kind of what story is. And, like, whereas with games, because of all these interactive constraints we have, where we, we need to have, you need to be able to play it for this amount of hours, apparently, and it needs to be fun, and the player needs to be able to understand the interaction in order to do it, it creates this, usually it creates this need for core mechanics, which means that you're doing the same thing over and over again which I think has a fundamental tension with story in some ways, because in stories, ideally, you're doing... The thing you're doing, or the situation you're in, has to change, and, and, and in, a, in a character-driven way. And I think that's, that's one of the fundamental things that mechanics-driven games struggle with. Yeah, I think I completely that, agree with that, um, because if you imagine like a story progressing through a game, and then at the last bit of the game is just another shooting gallery then what how has the gameplay evolved in the same way that the story evolved it's just it, do, it doesn't have the yeah. same impact it also needs to change in the same way and i think like yeah definitely games struggle with that a lot yeah it's like how, how do we make this ninth combat encounter dramatically progressive how does this progress the narrative yeah. is you know and it's like it goes back to you know like i've always felt as much as I love, like, you know, Uncharted 2 and The Last of Us are, like, pretty classic games to me, but, like, I still feel like if they got rid of five of the more generic combat sections, they would be objectively better games. But we don't do that because of, like, commercial constraints and all this kind of, and, you know, ideas about what games should be or what they need to be to provide a certain gameplay length mm-hmm. and value and all this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, you mentioned Edith, and that's really interesting how it's, what it's especially for an indie game, that they manage to create so many different things that you do and you are, you know, all this, you're, you're really doing different things. I think they really put, put, it, put it all in, in, I say put it on the game from what I was reading a while back, so my, my memory's rusted on this. This was like 13 or 18 different prototypes that they had, and they went, instead of going like, yes, we're going to use one, they went, 
All of them. <laughs> <laughs> Just put them all in. This Good. is the game. Yeah, and Alexa, I think it, it lends itself to, like, if you have a game where you do all these different things, then it it means that you're inherently bringing new experiences in a chain and a, a journey, a real journey, rather than, like, doing the same thing but then seeing cutscenes where people talk about different things. And, uh, yeah, if, if you can find a way to do that in a cost-efficient way, it's it's always interesting, I think. But it's just insanely, you know... It's it's hard to do that. I assume that game took ages to make. Yeah. I went to see the talk at GDC, yeah, and they, they talked about how it took a long time. Yeah. I mean, all I'm gonna say is that at the end they put pictures of before <laughs> and after and all of the pictures <laughs> like babies. The babies at the beginning, they look like the unicorn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Wow, deep reference there, Robert. I think I've always been interested in level design as a story thing and like I feel like I don't know, things have kind of slowed and uh, I was going to say the things have slowed down into in terms of the games that I'm interested in. I feel like there's less of them now because like I'm 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 less. I don't really play long open world games, and so I'm sure there is some awesome stuff going on in these games. But I just don't I don't feel like playing a game that long, and so I, I wish there was, you know, you know there's all all this talk of like the immersive sim, not being commercial enough anymore for AAA and stuff like that. And um, I don't know. I'm trying to think what I do wish there's there's still a longing I have for the not just first-person games, but just level design games where s- storytelling through level design is a really big thing. And and more than just, not just environmental storytelling, because I think that's been kind of done pretty well, but it's like level design through what the player does. Yeah, which Edith Finch is probably one of the best recent examples of that. I think Naughty Dog is really trying to push on that. I think that's kind of their main goal. Like if you played um, even The Last of Us DLC, where they had so many different mechanics that uh, you could go into this shop in the mall and you could wear different monster masks and kind of play around fool around and that kind of showed that ellie was you know still a kid and showed her innocence and then you contrast that with the world and the combat sections that they have afterwards so i it's it's definitely moving away from hey here's just like you know in uncharted here's all the combat sections pew pew then cuts in and it has extra mechanics or it changes how the mechanics work before and maybe for a particular section. And, and that kind of also goes hand to hand with the story and the level itself. I think it contextualizes uh, mechanics quite a lot, uh, you know, because I think Uncharted, for example, I always found that odd, same as kind of some Indiana Jones films in which he could just kill loads of people, but then be his this lovely professor that that teaches archaeology, which I know I'm conflating two of them, but come on, Uncharted is Indiana Jones, right? But do you know what I mean? He's like this lovable rogue, and next thing you know, you've murdered a whole bunch of people. But in The Last of Us, it just is kind of like, oh no, if you start killing people, there's a super good reason for it. or And you can contrast, as, you, as, as we were saying at the beginning, with the character's growth and deviation from the norm as we'd expect it, right? Because you don't expect a small girl to go out and kill yeah, and there were bits in that game that I loved as well. Like the, even the very start of it, when you play Joel's daughter, and there's that a bit where you you've jumped in the car and you're you're starting to see again in kind of in that classic kind of video game train mode where you see the world around you going crazy, and I love that in that game. They it's not just like I mean on one level they could have just made that cutscene. I'm I'm glad they didn't. And then you could have been you could have just been in the car looking around. But I loved the touch that they because they're a, they're a naughty dog and they have they, they do this to such an insanely high quality 
just looking around the car, the way that you see the Joel's daughter kind of reach around the car and look, <laughs> yeah. move to the other seat to look through the other window and stuff like that, it really felt like, oh, I know what that's like to, to be in the, to to crawl around the car and look around the windows kind of thing. And that that was super, like, it's gone down as a great opening to a game. And, and just the way that you encounter, you experience everything up to the cutscene where, you know. Yeah, and I think it really serves the point that there were the opening and the story at that point because you're experiencing uh, the destruction of your, I don't know, of your everyday world through the eyes of a vulnerable little girl. And that's why in, in the beginning, it's just that you're that person, you can't fight back, you have nothing. And I think it makes you more panicky, more scared about just like the characters are feeling. So that also like the gameplay and the mechanic there, even though it's simple, just looking around the car or like moving around the house. I mean, how hard is that, right? It's just it's simpler than creating a whole like, I don't know, <laughs> inventory system, let's say, but that serves the the actual story. And that's why I think also that the twenty-minute opening of the last was was impactful because they let you play as that character. It sets up the entire game as well. It's like from that point on, you see the you see the downfall of the world. You get the sense of feeling vulnerable, and basically throughout that entire game, scarce resources, you're weak, you're on like you you don't have the upper hand really at any point throughout this game. It's like you're always on the downtrodden version of it as well. And do you understand why Joel is the way he is? Uh, without having to have some sort of, you know, some sort of audio mm-hmm. log or thing to read or something, you've actually seen it and you've experienced it and you were part of that, so you understand much more about the character. And that's the way to build up characters, to experience what they've gone yeah. through. Yeah, I think that opening could have gone wrong in so many ways, but it just worked and then the rest of the game built on that and that worked too. Yeah. And I love the ending as well. The, the ending of yeah. Last of Us. Yeah, oh my god, especially yeah, since w- the other one's coming out. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Oh. I think we can spoil a, an old game. Right? <laughs> the thing I remember about it was just when it finished, I was like, that was good in a way that a good film is. Like, genuinely, the mm. quality of that story is actually as good as a film, which is unfortunately still a bar that is quite you know hard for games to hit. I think it, it not not that. I think it's partly because games don't aspire to do that most of the time, and 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 quite rightly so, and and all the kind of thing. But like, for the kind of for what it was going for, it did it. Um, it was it was really like, one of, it's one it's one of those games where I did imagine like, ah, oh, I wonder if they could have done the ending like this, and you know, there's, there's a lot of alternate endings and and ways of pen- and handling that ending that could have been interesting. But uh, you just want the dog that's been like manipulating everything from the, end of the UFO, right? The dog in the UFO manipulating everything. Every game. People can actually see some great a great talk. This is this is how I kind of you came on my radar because you did a great GDC talk a few years back. I'm on I don't know how many. Uh, two, three I can't years remember. Back. It's probably 2017. I think. Yeah, well, three years back. Something. Three years ago. Yeah. So in 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 normal years there'll be three, <laughs> but up in in pandemic kids is <laughs> which really helps new designers understand the whole process i mean about how all the different things have to fit together for it to work right i hope so um yeah i because I, I, because looking back at it now it's one of the key the key ideas and it was that whereas we i think we normally talk about games in terms of like store a story and graphics and gameplay kind of thing uh and and i can't remember when it occurred to me that the topics could be all the stuff that comes in between them you know so so the topics i talked about were like affordances and intentionality and how that comes out of the relationship between the presentation of a game and the gameplay and then like interactive narrative being a thing between gameplay and narrative 
and world building being a combination of like art and story essentially oh, well presentation and story yeah that was just struck me like as how my favorite moments in games have struck me as it's when it's like like half-life 2 really struck me as something where it's like wow every aspect of this game is really high quality like not in a cinematic way but cinematic quality i thought where i felt like i was playing the story and i was seeing the story in the world and you know all of that stuff worked together really well and yeah just kind of i'm really happy that i managed to figure out a way to articulate that in some way for uh, our listeners you can go and check him out on the youtubes or your nearest vault of gdc content yeah. uh, it's called a, an approach to holistic level design yeah I'm, I'm quite pleased with it like i i like i say i still think about other talks now and again but and i've thought about doing it as a lockdown thing as well it just makes sense right now to well i don't know film filming talks is really hard though like uh it's really because it, when you do it as a talk you can kind of prepare for months and you kind of like you treat it like a talk and it's 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 just it's a different thing and like in the same way that being on a podcast or a panel is different because you don't plan and it's you just kind of hope you can wing it and not say anything embarrassing but then like with recording a talk it's a weird mix of the because t- i tried it a while back it's a weird mix of like kind of scripting and practicing something but then trying not to sound like you're just reading from a script and, and all this kind of thing it's, yeah, it's quite tricky anyway yeah I've, I've, all, I've thought about doing like another talk on like um layout design because that's i mean that's that's one of the big ones that i think everybody wants but again it's i don't think it's been done because it's hard to say how you should approach level layout design for all kinds of games but again i think there are some principles that could be you know that are useful that could be applied to lots of different games but um yeah i'm really pleased with the ddc talk it was it's uh it's almost one of the things i've i almost like it a lot more than stuff i've done in games in a different way because it's it's very not not because i'm not happy with the game stuff but it's more i think i'm just a very i love thinking about stuff in that kind of way and so it feels very me that i kind of did a talk in a way because i feel like it's i don't know i suppose it's it's also a thing that's it's different to the games certainly the triple a game stuff because it's it was just me and it's kind of different whereas like you know with Dishonored 2 you know I'm really kind of sitting on the uh, standing on the shoulders of giants who and all the other people helping making that game and uh, and the end product is like a you know is in some ways not always what you intended it to be but it's cool in a different way and all this kind of stuff so it's nice to do a talk where it's just like this is just me and I've got to figure out how to make this interesting for an hour it's a self-reliance thing as well it's like you know there is like group projects or work that you do with a whole bunch of people that takes a lot of people and and doing it by yourself steve if people want to get hold of you ask you questions about level design i'm sure people want to pick your brains what's the best way they can contact you uh twitter is fine like you can stalk me on instagram but there's there's no (laughs) place for uh level design questions uh i yeah i and it was actually something i was thinking of um opening up more officially like so so my twitter handle is uh, sl2 which is e double s e double l2 i wish i could have it without the two but somebody else stole it um i yeah my dms are open and i am genuinely open to like taking questions and stuff and i've actually another thing i'm supposed to be writing is like just an faq of level design questions that i've kind of heard a lot over the years and i've thought it only just occurred to me recently that i could do it as a video like, like like the youngsters do on YouTube. Yep. I could yeah, do a video, YouTube. but... Oh, hey, <laughs> you could do an Instagram story. <laughs> there you go. That would be even cooler. 
I'll do a TikTok. <laughs> I love yeah. that TikTok. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> with like some puppies in the background, like somersaulting and yeah. stuff. Come on, game um, developers, we can take over TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be so awkward. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Valentina, if people want to throw questions at you. So you can find me on Twitter at Valentina Chris. That's C-H-R-Y-S. And Jonathan? Uh, as always, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Omni slash 92. And Rob? And you can find me on Twitter, RM McLaughlin. That's R-M-M-C-L-A-C-H-L-A-N. Awesome. We're going to put those Twitter links on the feed. And if you want to contact me for whatever reason, I don't know why you would, I'm at Mark Drew on the Twitters. Thank you very much. It's been an awesome episode and I'll bid you all a lovely good night. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night. The Level Design Podcast has been a Command Studio production. Our editor is Matthew Lever and this episode has been produced by Bridie Rose.